Hello, and welcome to Buen Provecho Chronicles. My name is Claudia. If you're here for the first time, welcome. And if you've been here before, thank you for coming back. For those of you who have listened before, you might have wondered, where has she been? And I have just been out there, honestly, just living and getting settled back into some sort of routine um, post-pandemic. Can I say post-pandemic? I'm not really sure. But you know what I mean. And... Um, As I kind of reflected on what I've been up to, one of the things that we've had the privilege of doing again is traveling. We've been down to Mexico several times, and that's actually what's inspired these next two uh, conversations that I'm going to be sharing with you. We've met some really great people on our travels. Um, This first one in particular was an experience that we had in Oaxaca last year in March. Uh, Andrea Hagen is one of the founders of Miss Scouting. They offer a number of different experiences in Oaxaca. And we had the opportunity to visit one of the mezcal producers in Oaxaca because it's something that's become really popular in recent years. And it's something that my husband enjoys a little bit more than I do. But I'm still always curious about the story behind how a product of food is essentially made. And that's exactly what we got when we traveled with Andrea and her team um, to Santa Catarina Minas. It was amazing. I'm not going to get into it. If you're ever in Oaxaca, you should definitely check it out. But needless to say, Andrea is just a wealth of information and we absolutely enjoyed it. So I wanted to get the chance to talk to her again. So that's what I'm sharing with you today. I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Andrea Hagen from Scouting. Hello. Hello. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good too. I'm in my closet, if you're wondering. <laughs> no, I figure that's very, very podcasty of you. I tried you know, to set up in my office. Very NPR. Yeah, um, but th- one of our neighbors is doing construction on his place, and so there was just like this consistent banging. I was like, "This is not going to work. <laughs> I got to move." Oh. So I'm back in my closet. <laughs> How so. are you? Good to see you. You too. And just to let you know, I'm recording already. I just find it easier to get going from the beginning, and then I can totally with it later. Totally so. great. Yeah, wonderful. No, thanks for saying yes. It's really good to see you again. Yeah, you too. And I, I listened to a couple of your podcasts. It's a really cool project. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I started it, I think it was November of, might have been 20. I don't even remember anymore. Um, I was just starved for like human interaction, even though I couldn't, you know, see the people in person. Um, but I was tired of talking to my dog. And as much as I love my husband, I was tired of talking to him. So <laughs> I was like, I got to do something. He's like, start a podcast. He loved talking about food. I was like, great. Everybody has one. Why not me? Um, so yeah, thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, no, I started, um, I thought of you. So I did it for a couple of months and then like the world slowly started to open up or at least feel safe, uh, safe-ish again. Um, so we started traveling and we mostly headed down to Mexico and so I actually started going through some of the photos from our trip to Oaxaca I think that was the second time when we um toured with you and I was like oh I really want to talk to her again and then it just reminded me of like all of these cool folks that I've met since we started traveling again um and I was like that's a great theme to just talk to you know folks who are on the ground you know showing people around and yeah I thought of you immediately because thank you enjoyed 
my husband in particular just he loves mezcal and so that was just like this huge thing for him and I just love eating and it was a great time great yeah well and and that um I was looking at the questions you sent me and yeah uh I I definitely like one thing I I think that I hope that people walk away with from the mezcal tours in particular is like it's not just a product you know like it's a part of a food system yeah and I think that like sometimes we get people are like oh I want to go on a mezcal tour but my mom doesn't drink I'm like well it's don't worry you don't need to drink to enjoy it you know like you'll learn so much you'll enjoy you know you'll learn so much about the food system the culture the area without even touching the mezcal and that's the part that I really enjoy and we can get into it um just because I have a background in food systems, I worked in a nonprofit sector for a while, just with local ag and stuff like that. So that's nice. the part that really hit me when we were going through that whole tour. Um, and I was just glad that we were learning about it outside of just the context of like, drink mezcal, it's popular or whatever. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. But let's get started. So I, okay, let's. I'm, I'm trying to figure out, I feel like I know a little bit about you. There's, I always start with one question. That is, what are some of your early, earliest food memories? And then we can jump into like, just t- you telling me a little bit about yourself and then your yeah. passion for food systems and all of that. But I feel like that's where it all begins, right? At home, um, whether our family enjoyed a meal around the table with or without good food, um, but it's kind of the the heart of the home, supposedly. Um, but that's where it all started for me. And for those of us who are passionate or just in love with food and everything that goes behind it it I think it started with a spark like that so I'm always curious what folks spark is so yeah that's my question to you <laughs> Long so I I would say I was not interested in food at all until I went to college oh really yeah definitely um I grew up in suburban Chicago and my earliest food memories is my parents were always very clear that we had to have a protein, a starch, and a vegetable at every dinner. Very strict. Uh-huh. And unlike many of my friends, we had to sit down and have dinner together every night. Okay. And that was 6.30. Later, it got tricky with all the schedules. Right. With sports and theater practice and all that. But... I think I was the only family that I knew of that they forced us to sit down and eat a meal together. So I would say that was like our my first sort of memories around food. Mm-hmm. But I don't remember particularly being like excited about that or enjoying it. Um, I do remember this point a lot because it really contrasted with how I connected to food and food systems in college is that we had uh, a freezer in the basement and um, my dad, he lived in Milwaukee and my mom lived in suburban Chicago and they shared custody. So they would drop me off at the border of Wisconsin. And there's this amazing grocery store called Woodman's. It's like two football fields long and like two wide, like it's huge. And it's employee owned, which was like a big deal. Yeah. It's like a local Sam's club almost. And okay. so my, one of my earliest memories is Wisconsin was the first state to say we're not going to use bovine growth hormone in milk. And there was a lot of young kids on our block, like a lot of kids my age, a lot of kids my brother's age. And my mom would 
say who wants milk for their kids for the week and so she would fill the minivan up with milk and then yeah and then in the winter she would stick it in the snow outside people's doors oh wow yeah and then uh in our meat freezer or in the freezer we had a lot of meat so whenever a meat would go on sale they would buy a lot of that or even bread or whatever yeah and that wasn't like a very stark contrast to my introduction to food systems in college. So I went to college at the University of Vermont mm-hmm. and I just wanted something very different. And it was sure different from the Midwest. <laughs> now you're talking <laughs> very, geography, just completely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And culture. Sure. I mean, um, the reason I ended up in Oaxaca is when I got to Vermont, I did I did not realize there was 300 days of cloud per year. It's like oh the gosh. same latitude as Seattle. Uh-huh. And so that's why everyone skis or snowboards or snowshoes or cross-country skis. And being from the West, I didn't do any of that. Uh-huh. To us, skiing is going to Wisconsin where they have these trash mounds covered in dirt. And like a double black diamond hill is what people sled on in Vermont. Uh-huh. So um when I realized that that was going to be my fate for the next four years, I uh, met this girl in a class of mine. She's like, I'm doing the Oaxaca program next semester. You should do it with me. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. And so the school had a program, the study abroad program to Oaxaca, and they let you go as a so- as a sophomore student because all your credits transferred. They brought professors from the university. So I just said, OK, yeah, great. So were you already studying, studying food systems at Vermont or? So I I eventually did okay. after my trip to Oaxaca. Uh, what did so you... I studied uh, environmental studies as okay. my degree, and I studied in the School of Agriculture. Mm. And so that was my first awakening. I had no idea what industrial meat production was. Mm-hmm. So to learn, you know, the 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 fact that always sort of stood out for me that, um, you know, beef farming, cattle farming in Colorado produces more greenhouse gases per year than all the airline travel in the U.S. per year is like, what? Mm -hmm. So when I heard that, then I suddenly was like, oh, like, where was all that meat in the freezer coming from? (laughs) And that's when I really started to like get an interest in food systems. And it was the beginning of sort of, this was like 2007. So it was the beginning of sort of like farm to table, eat mm-hmm. kale, like everyone was wearing like a kale tote. And like, and I had no idea it was like very exotic for me. So being far away from home and being a freshman in college, I was kind of like swayed by this cool new like thing. Yeah. And I wanted to eat local and eat organic, but I couldn't afford that. So <laughs> I became a vegan for about two years because yeah. I just couldn't, Yeah. I was like, well, I can't afford to eat like what I want to eat. So I'm just not going to eat it. Yeah. And then I, when I came to Oaxaca, I was like, that's not going to (laughs) work. So I became a vegetarian and it turns out Mexico eats the most eggs in the world. That, that was like a point that really stuck with me. Yeah. It's the country that eats the most eggs because it's like cheap protein and everyone has a chicken. That's true. Yeah. And then, um, when I went back to school, I lived in a house where we had our own chickens and my roommates, I mean, it's very Vermont. My roommates worked <laughs> on a school farm and they did a work trade. So we got, we had raw milk uh-huh. and, you know, 
Vermont's a dairy state, not as much as Wisconsin, but that's when I continue to be vegetarian as I am mostly till this day. Yeah. So that, that was kind of my like, um, introduction to like, what is a food system and where does this food come from? And, uh, I would say, like, in terms of earliest food memories, it's definitely sitting down for family dinner. But I do remember, I mean, my favorite food to this day is strawberries. Yeah. And I remember when I got to visit my grandparents in Florida, like, we would just, I would just be allowed to go, like, hog wild on strawberries. (laughs) And, like, still, I know, like, I try to eat seasonal, I try to eat local, I try to eat all those things, but strawberries are definitely, like my weakness. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mine are, I hate it to say it, but bananas. Bananas are like the worst, I think, fruit. (laughs) I have a banana almost every other day. We were raised that way though. I think, I I mean, it was the times. (laughs) We had bananas too. Yeah. It's like the one that I can't shake. I mean, I put them in my smoothies. They're just like easy to pick up. Grab it with some peanut butter, some almond butter, whatever butter you're eating today. Um, And yeah, bananas are it for me. I remember when I was working at the nonprofit that was, you know, with local ag, one of the, one of my coworkers would just like rail against the banana industry. And I was like, like, so sorry. It's like my shame. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm sorry. It's about balance and it probably is the worst one, but I can't shake that one. I try to do good in all the other areas, but yeah. <laughs> I I spent many years like very conflicted, Claudia. Like, mm. like oh, I can't drink this milk. It's not local. And, oh, yeah. You know, and, and really like, you know, sort of pinching pennies to be able to buy organic eggs. And I feel very uh, lucky now to live in a place. I was just thinking about this before our conversation, like, I can have local seven different types of local bananas. I can have local milk. I can have local eggs at an accessible price. Like, yeah, but it is all about balance, right? Because if we're like torturing ourselves to not eat a banana and it brings us so much joy, it's like there are other, you know, Mm -hmm. worst things in the world. Like (laughs) the what, you know, the the like 1% of companies that create all these greenhouse emissions and we're torturing ourselves over a banana over a banana or a strawberry exactly yeah it really it is about balance um so i know every time we go to mexico i'm like this is wonderful like well yeah that's like a whole complete conversation i feel like <laughs> <laughs> but i wanted to go back okay so you did yeah, yeah sorry you did no no you did your study abroad how long was that it was a yeah. semester just a semester okay so then when you got back to the states is that when you were like food systems or you just still continued with your environmental studies and ag or did it shift after that? I, I, I studied with my environment. I, I stayed with the environmental studies okay. ag, and then I did another semester abroad in Chile. Oh, wow. And both in Oaxaca and in Chile, I was curious about how free trade agreements affect the way that people eat. Mm. So I, one of your questions. Um, so in Oaxaca, I had this sort of life-changing experience. Uh, we went to this rural village outside of a town called Cibatlan. And the the program I was on had no focus. It was very general, like so you could get a Spanish credit and a history credit. And a, now it's very. I mean, when I worked for them, they had a food systems track, which I would have loved. I remember but, that. Yeah. Yeah. So 
we went to this village and we were supposedly helping them map their water system. None of, I mean, we just walked around with them to their wells for like uh-huh. a week um, and talked about erosion and reforestation. But the idea was like, also as, you know, mostly white college students in indigenous community, like learning that you are not the savior, right? Mm-hmm. You're coming in and you're learning about them and you're not a water expert, so you can't tell them what to do. But you can say like, oh, maybe it would be great if we just put a net over this well so animals don't poop in it. Right. You know, like really like, you know, only offer the advice that you can give. And that was a big lesson as like a college student. But I learned something else that sort of set me off on this mescal and corn path in that Oaxaca is the birthplace of corn. So Mm -hmm. we have two pieces of corn in Oaxaca, one near Mitla, east of the city, that's dated back 7,500 years, and another in the Mixtec of Oaxaca that's dated back 7,000 years. So we think like the oldest piece of corn in the entire world is probably from Oaxaca. And in Mexico, we have over 63 land-raised varieties of corn or unique um, varietals of corn. But then it gets even crazier because each community has been saving seeds for so long. And then sometimes, in some cases, some families have been growing corn on a particular plot for over seven generations. So they're not only like hyper local, but like hyper adapted to that one plot, which is just insane. And I think there's not a lot of, to my knowledge, a lot of like study being done on that. But in this community, almost it was very small community, like less than 500 people. Almost all the men between 15 and 60 were in Oregon working in apple orchards and sending money home. Mm -hmm. And the people left to the community are women Mm -hmm. taking care of their young children or elderly parents. And those women don't have time to be like planting and harvesting an organic field like they they got bigger fish to fry so the woman that was preparing our meals every day she's making fresh tortillas as you do in Oaxaca Mm -hmm. but the corn was from Iowa I was like that's weird why is that corn from Iowa how are they getting it it comes in through uh like Visconsa like a government aid program Mm -hmm. so there's like a um a store here that subsidizes basic goods like milk, oil, beans, sugar, um, and other basic goods in Mexico. And it's like kind of a government subsidized store, basically. Got it. And that corn comes into Mexico. My understanding is because we give so much aid. Well, we give so many subsidies to corn and soy farmers in the States, Mm -hmm. then they have an excess of products. So in the States, we turn that into corn syrup. Mm-hmm. But then we also sell it to countries that we have free trade agreements like Mexico. Right. And we also give it away through aid programs. So mostly through USAID. Okay. So I don't know if the American government is selling it to the Mexican government and the Mexican government is like giving it through these aid programs. But she has this, we're like in the middle of nowhere in the mountains <laughs> where corn originally is from. And we have this bag of corn from Iowa and it's like it's feed corn they don't like the taste as much it's probably not as nutritious Mm -hmm. like and that just sort of set me off I was like that's what why it's bizarre yeah Yeah. 
So that's when I really became interested in food systems on a greater scale. And then when I was in Chile, um, at the time in 2010, Chile was the country with the most free trade agreements and growing. And I believe Mexico has now surpassed them. Wow. So because Chile, all their neoliberal policies were put in place during the dictatorship because you wouldn't be able to put these policies in place if there was an elected official because they're just so crazy. They're not beneficial to the people at all. Mm-hmm. When it's our winter, it's their summer. So yeah. they're exporting something like, you know, like all of their produce to the north. And what stays in the country is third tier, fourth tier, you know, Mm-hmm. very poor quality produce and it's like 250 percent the price that it was in the 80s so people don't even like to eat like that much yeah. fresh food yeah yeah so yeah that's how I got interested in that and so then that's how I, I eventually minored in food systems and okay. community and international development so that's what you graduated with yeah wow that's crazy yeah. I love that it was like a bag of corn in Iowa or from Iowa sorry that you crazy. In Oaxaca was crazy. that kind of set you off. Um, yeah. Now, I, now I'm remember. I'm, I could be misremembering. One is that still happening? Because I remember a few years ago, and I'm sure it still happens. There's, I know there's an organization in Mexico called, called um, Fundación de Maíz. Is that right? Maybe de la tortilla. De la tortilla. Yes, that's the one. Um, and it's really centered around preserving, you know, native corn and things like that and also trying to stop the import of yeah from Iowa is that and I know and this is where I'm not very knowledgeable did that get stopped as far as like not letting outside corn come in or is that still ongoing that's still ongoing but Mexico did have a law that later they reversed and then reinstated that you cannot grow GMO GMO. crops in Mexico okay so there were these test fields in northern Mexico, like in Sonora. And there there was evidence of genetic drift of the GMO seeds into the um, you know, local seeds. Yeah. And so then there was a law put in place that you can't grow GMO. But there's nothing against it coming in already dried. But you can't because it's GMO, you can't replant the seeds. So there's no like planting of GMO crops in Mexico. Yeah. Okay. I've just, I've seen such a, I guess, I guess we would call it a resurgence, at least here in the States, definitely within like Mexican restaurants of just using more heirloom corn and you've got companies like Macienda bringing it in. And I actually just bought a bag of two different Masecas from them just to try it. Oh, they're great. They really are. I was, I'm, I grew up with, well, a little background. My mom had a tortilleria, but it was around flour because we're on the I grew up here in Texas on the border so it's you know yeah. more wheat um yeah. but eventually my brother ended up opening his own place and he has corn and flour and he does the whole nixtamalization process so I grew up eating fresher corn and but we would have maseca like every once in a while and I just remember feeling like it tasted lifeless <laughs> it's just not great um, no so when I tried macienda I was like oh this is actually really good I bought it to make conchas to be <laughs> To be fair, not to make uh, not to make tortillas, but I tried a little bit and I was really just surprised. So I feel like it's come a long way and it's been because of the work I think that communities like in Oaxaca have been doing to preserve just that heirloom variety. And I think 
the younger generation maybe too. And I don't know, where, where do you think that kind of stemmed from? Just that wanting to hold on to that mm. and preserve it. Uh, well, I'll just speak to, there, I have two examples. So so two of the families that we work with, one is in Teotitlan del Valle, mm -hmm. which is a, a village, Zapotec village, about 40 minutes to the east of Oaxaca City. And the woman that we work there, Aurora, and her husband, Juanario, they grow four types of heirloom corn. Mm -hmm. um, two have been in her husband's family for at least seven generations, being cultivated in the same place that they live yeah. for seven generations because yeah. they live on her husband's family property. Uh -huh. And one of the corns is from her family, probably also about seven generations. But then there's a fourth type of corn that mixes when the pollen floats in the air, and they call okay. that painted corn. Um, so they, for example, are very strict Mm -hmm. And very what they call celoso, like jealous of other people's corn. They don't want any mixing of the corns. Um, they say if they were to run out of seed, they would go to another family member. And if that they were to run out of seed, they would go to another community member. Mm -hmm. So they don't even really want to eat people's corn from literally the town 10 minutes away. Wow. Like very, very strict about it. Yeah. And always has been. There's a very famous type of corn from there. I believe Macieta sometimes has it. It's called bolita. Mm -hmm. And it's a white corn that's hyper native to Teotitlan. Mm -hmm. And it's, I believe, one of the 63 land race varieties recognized in Mexico by Conabio, the National Commission on Biodiversity and its uses. Mm -hmm. um, but specifically, like our other friends from the same town, they have a plot of land about 30 minutes down the road and it's a totally different altitude. And so the typical corn in the valleys in Oaxaca, you plant it during the rainy season. It's a three month growth cycle. Mm -hmm. And then you harvest it when it's dry. So the, our friends that have the plot 30 minutes down the road, theirs is a six month growth cycle. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it, it's a different altitude. Yeah. It's different rainfall there. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's sort of like no study being done in those two different like sub of white corn from one town. But there's a pride there. Like, yeah. this is our corn. This is the flavor we like. We're very uh, jealous. Like, we don't want to share with anyone. Yeah. And then a totally different story is uh, my partner, Marco, his family that lives two hours to the south of Oaxaca in an area called Mioatlan. Mm -hmm. They used to grow at least two types of corn and usually three types of beans. Now, that area was hit very hard by um, immigration. So, for example, his cousins that are in their 40s or uncles that are in their 60s, they all left to work in Guadalajara or in some cases in the States, particularly like Alabama, Georgia are big areas. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Florida as well. Uh -huh. Yeah, and in Alabama, some people work in the chicken plants. Uh -huh. um, some people work in construction. In Georgia, people have worked a lot in forestry services. I especially find it fascinating when food systems in Mexico are changing when people are in the States working in agriculture because it's like the whole food system in the States is changing because of that. Well, you know how we need undocumented labor to make our food system work in the States. Right. But I mean, the, the reason why this original town that I went to outside of Zipatlan really struck me is like, 
wait, they're working, picking apples and they're sending money back. And like, then you're also getting corn from Iowa. Like, this is so weird. Like this, this is a broken food system, you know? Yeah. But the people, the people in Mioatlan, uh, they used to grow all these different heirloom crops. And then they said when they, it's so weird when you ask people, what's your favorite type of corn? They always say the black corn, which is like what we would say purple okay, or um, yellow. But today, most people only grow white corn. They're like, wait, but if you like the flavor better of the other ones, like, why don't you grow the other ones? So I said, okay, well, when we needed to sell corn sometimes in the market, no one would buy the black corn. They're like, what? But everyone likes the flavor better. So over the years, as people have left and come back, because a lot Mm. of people are coming back now to make mezcal. And in that area, they grow a row of agaves, five rows of corn, beans, and squash, row of agaves, five rows of corn, beans, and squash. Mm -hmm. You have people coming back, they're just growing one type of corn, one type of beans. It's still heirloom, but you've lost a lot of the local seeds due to migration. And people come back with totally different food habits, like especially in places where you can't find tortillas, people eat white bread, right. which has had a huge impact on the Mexican diet overall. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I believe we passed the U.S. for diabetes, highest diabetes rate a couple of years ago. But I think now we've passed the use in childhood obesity as well. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that's sort of my whole thing. I'm I'm really curious about, you know, how a decision like NAFTA, which caused a lot of migration, but yeah. also caused a lot of corn coming into Mexico, how all those sort of big government decisions, free trade agreements, really affect the way people eat on a day-to-day basis. In Mexico. Yeah, in, in Mexico and then also in, in Chile. I mean, people just don't eat fresh vegetables. It's like Yeah, which is crazy. Crazy. Wait, I think like just listening to what you were saying it just shows like the interconnectedness too of especially I mean here stateside and specifically here in Texas is just you have seen this just the popularity of heirloom varieties of corn and more restaurants are actually processing their own corn and selling you know fresh tortillas and then you know what I'm hearing is and I think I've seen some of it is you know wheat is actually maybe on the rise and childhood obesity obesity and things like that it's almost like we're swapping in a way like not food systems i don't know but i guess it's with travel and just the popularity of um mexican food kind of up and not up and coming um well more of an appreciation right realizing that mexico isn't tex-mex or it's not just all tacos you know more of an appreciation of like wow, there's this really complex history and culture and diverse crops behind this amazing cuisine, you know, realizing like Mexico's huge, like. Yeah, it's vast. And we we had to just limited to this little silo, like you said, Tex-Mex, which don't even get me started on that. I'm like, it is regional. Tex-Mex is a regional thing. It's neither good nor bad. It's just, it's different. Yeah, it's, it's not Mexican different. Food. Yeah, um, exactly. And so, yeah, it's just funny, like the way we're kind of, latching on to this heirloom stuff and things might be changing in Mexico when it comes to that stuff. But I do see, especially like when we travel to Mexico City, folks are trying to incorporate that more and more into cooking, which is really nice to see and to hear because to me, that's the heart of Mexican cooking is like corn, beans. Um, Sin maíz, no hay país. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, 
I don't know. I just it it blows me away. Like these stories of just this slick, cyclical nature. Like you said, food habits change when folks come here to work. They take it back, but they also miss things um, from back home. So, for example, my sister in law um, works with a with a family from Oaxaca. They've moved here to the states, and family will send them food that they can't find here. Like they will send them bags. Like of, you where I was going yeah I mean I'm just like how do they get him here and without breaking and just things like that and so I think that also just brings those flavors into the states which I'm super grateful for um so yeah I don't know I think it's it's really cool but I will say that's one, one thing about Oaxaca I, I mean I am so spoiled my reference for so much Mexican food and food systems is Oaxaca mm. where a lot of this was never lost right like right. the people we work with in Teotitlan they never lost their seed mm -hmm. they never like their part of their family did migrate to the states but it was temporary it wasn't for a long time yeah. it was for two three years in the 90s and then they came back you know what I mean and so what do you think? Why do you think that is like what's different about Oaxacan culture or the families there that they do only migrate for a few years versus in other parts of the, you know, of the Republic? People just go and sometimes they just never come back or they keep sending money for a variety yeah. of reasons they can't go back. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like, Oaxaca's I mean, we know, I mean, we have a lot of uh extended family where like the oldest kid that went in the family had kids with an American and their kids are citizens. And so they'll never come back. Yeah. Basically. Mm -hmm. That's the case. I mean, it varies from family to family, obviously, but there is just, uh, I don't know if I, I mean, as like white American, I don't know if I have like the authority to say this, but yeah. I do think that there is even, even when people from Oaxaca are in the States, like they just find a way to hang on to that food system. Like right before Day of the Dead, you'll see lines around the block of people sending bread and, you know, the crickets, the chapolines mm. and clayudas and chocolate yeah. and quesillo. And they just will make sure they have that. that there is a taste of home mm -hmm. for the people that are here. Yeah. I had heard once and I could again, this I could be very wrong that. Part of the reason, too, that it seems like Oaxaca has been able to hang on to so much of its culture, language, too. Like, you don't hear a lot of the um, indigenous languages in other states anymore, maybe at the same level that you do say in Oaxaca. Yeah. Is, is because yeah, of the yeah. infrastructure? Like, Oaxaca mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily have the same infrastructure, roads, access, yeah. resources like that, that other states have been given. So they've been isolated in a way. Correct. Okay. I mean... Yeah, I would definitely agree. It's, you know, the beach is like 120 miles. I could be making that up, but it's like a seven hour drive. I like, know. It, it's a crazy. I mean, it's like, yeah. so definitely I've had the opportunity this year to really travel a lot more within the state. And we just went to an area like six hours away. It's like a totally different culture. It's between the Mixteca, the Trikis, and the coast. And it's like every single community is like holding on to their identity because they don't really have contact with the outside world. Yeah. I, and it's it's wild when you talk to some people that their first language is Zapotec and they go to the States and they learn more English than they did Spanish growing up. There's people of a certain age, like in their 60s and 70s, that that might have happened to them. Like they spoke Zapotec, they spoke a little bit of Spanish. 
but they didn't have much formal schooling. Then they went to the States, they learned English, and then they came back and they learned more Spanish. That's crazy. It's pretty wild. Yeah, I love it. That's the beauty of migration, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just like this interchange of ideas and cultures and, and things like that. But yeah, yeah, I find Oaxaca fascinating. Um, okay, so you left. I'm like, wow, I, have, I could ask you so many questions. You left, you went back, you worked for the university for all. Eventually you went back to Oaxaca. You've been there, what now? 10? Last year it was 10 years. Was that right? Yeah. So 11 years. Yeah. So 11 years now. What brought you back? Well, after I went to Chile and I could only eat like white bread for six months, <laughs> they, they eat a lot of sausage and white bread and mm-hmm. a salad is onions and tomatoes. Uh-huh. So after that, I was like, oh, wow, Oaxaca was really special. And I had no idea because I I just said, okay, it's a warm place. And when I was here, I was like, oh, this is so cool. But I realized that it was a really special place like after that. Yeah. Because I had that traveled internationally, really. So to have those two experiences. um, And I had this idea that I wanted to do something with corn, but I didn't know what. I mean, it was post-recession everyone was doing unpaid internships so I basically approached my old professor and I said hey like seems like you needed a an assistant right and she's like yeah I do but we we literally just hired someone so you can come in as an unpaid intern I was like okay that's fine yep and I moved uh to Oaxaca in January 2012, thinking I was going to be here maybe for this, I knew for the semester, and then study Spanish a little bit, and then backpack. So the idea was to be here like six months to a year. Mm -hmm. But then I got a job uh, working with a nonprofit with coffee farmers, Mm -hmm. really interesting um, project called Coffee Kids. I don't think it exists anymore. But they basically matched coffee farmers with grants or training or funding from big companies like Starbucks or Green Mountain or something that said like Starbucks would be like, okay, we want to do a prenatal healthcare project in Nicaragua. Be like, okay, great. This co-op wants to do that. Mm -hmm. And so it was really great because the projects came from the cooperatives themselves. They didn't come from like a company like Starbucks saying like, we want to do this. And so I learned that coffee farmers sell their coffee one time a year and then they have to live off that so there's a lot of food insecurity because people have gotten rid of the crops to grow more coffee yeah. and there's a big fungus going around um, in Central America so sometimes people's whole crops get wiped out by a fungus and then they have nothing to sell and then they have nothing to eat very complicated so that's right. how I started getting even like more into the food system then from there I worked for a chef for about a year she offers cooking classes in Oaxaca But she also wrote two books, one called, uh, she's written several books, but two that really stood out to me was um, one about the seven moles of Oaxaca. Mm -hmm. And then when I was working for her, she was working on a book about the milpa, about the three sisters crop, the corns, beans, and squash, specifically in the Mixteca region of Oaxaca. So that's how I learned uh, Susanna Trilling. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's how I learned even more about the food system. And then I was to like pay my bills. I was working at a dive bar on the weekends and that's how I started getting into mezcal. And then I went to this mezcal tasting room and had this tasting 
And I was like, wow, it's all connected. And like the mezcal producers are corn producers. And uh, I was given a tasting by Marco, who is now my fiance. Oh. And <laughs> I was like, that guy has beautiful eyes, but it would be another eight years before we got together. You're kidding. Yeah. So then I worked <laughs> at the Mezcal tasting room for about four years. Is this and then Mezcaloteca? We, Mezcaloteca, okay. yeah. And he was one of the founders and we awesome. gave his his uh, family's Mezcal. Mm -hmm. Marco comes from a line of, uh, if he was born in Mioatlan, he would have been the seventh generation to produce Mezcal. Mm -hmm. He's born and raised in Mexico City. Mm -hmm. And um, then we formed our company Miscounting six okay. years ago. And we wanted to originally bring people to the farms to know the producer, to sort of cut out the middlemen. And I really love the idea of incorporating the food system. So one of my favorite tours that, that we do to a Palencia or Mezcal production site, someone home in Miwatlan, we do a cooking class using the corn that they grow on site. Uh -huh. And then you get to try like 10 different mezcals that they also make on site. So it <laughs> sounds like, like it. Yeah, it's a lot. But you have like six hours to try exactly. all of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. So mezcal was started by you and Marco. Mezcouting. Yeah. Mezcouting. Sorry. Yes. Um, and it was specifically just around mezcal originally. And you brought in that food systems element. Yeah. And so uh, today we work in four communities. Uh -huh. We do 16 different day tours. We do a few overnight tours to our ranch in Mioatlan. Mm -hmm. And uh, we incorporate mezcal, craft, uh, traditional healing, and cooking. That's awesome. I know. I was looking at the website again and I was like, oh my goodness, they really do a lot. Because then you do specialties too, where if you're a chef or a photographer, you can also just yeah uh, one, one of our most popular tours last year which for me as a vegetarian is fascinating let me tell you is doing your own barbacoa from scratch so we have a two-day workshop where you can come to the ranch uh, -huh. uh which is marco's family's like farm basically yeah uh and we have some guest rooms and you can slaughter and butcher your own uh goat or sheep uh -huh. and then Two mezcal producers, Marco's uncles, are our teachers, and they teach us how to butcher and prepare the oven. And so we stay there two nights uh, to prepare the animal, prepare the oven, enjoy a family meal with everyone, drink everyone's mezcal, visit uh -huh. a couple mezcal farms. Um, and so now, last year, I I butchered four times. Whoa. Yeah. Which before I used to kind of like hide in the corner. Yeah. And it helped. It just even help me understand the food system better because this is a celebration food. This is a sometimes food for people. Marco's cousin raises the animal. Um, and it didn't make me want to eat it anymore, but I do appreciate it a lot more. Yeah. Cause there's just, there's a hand on it throughout the whole process that, you know, you know, it's all, it's very much in the family, everybody, at some point has seen it or knows how to do it. And it's done with a, a sense of respect, like you said, because it's a celebration food too. It's not exactly it's for thing. baptism, it's for a wedding, it's for yeah. a special occasion, and mm -hmm. every single part of the animal is used. Right. Yeah. So it's not where it's not as detached as we are here when we go to our supermarkets and everything's nice and plastic and you don't know where what part of it is. We have is. that too. You do, you do. But yeah. I feel like 
when you are able to see that, um, especially even I guess like you, even if you're a vegetarian, I think it's important for for meat eaters to witness that at some point. I don't know. Somebody will probably be like, no, never, I never have to see that. But I I don't know. There's something to paying respect to the animal that's that's feeding you that I th- I don't for me is really important. I saw it growing up a little a little bit. <laughs> I, I heard it more than anything. But that would re- be really interesting to experience, I think. I know Nathan, my husband, would absolutely be down for that. But I was wondering, so you've added so much. You originally just started with how many, because you call them, you prefer to call them outings, not necessarily tours, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of the times we're just hanging out in people's houses, like literally like sitting in a hammock. People are telling their stories and there's not so much of like a structure. Mm -hmm. And so there are a couple of I think, I mean, we did the Mezcal Minero, which is our most structured mm-hmm. tour for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we call them outings because a lot of times it's like hanging out. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like it. I like it. So did you start adding all these other experiences out of your own desire or because folks were asking for them? So, so um, like, yeah. Mostly of my own desire. Okay. <laughs> and I... And I was really lucky when I was a student, I met this women's cooperative in the weaving village called Vida Nueva. Mm-hmm. And so I knew when we started the company that in addition to working with Margot's family, that we wanted to work with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has expanded over the years. I mean, we originally just did sort of a dye workshop and a little cooking class, but now we work with this woman, Aurora, and her husband, Juanario. Mm-hmm. And that has become our most popular tour for sure. cooking with their different heirloom corns all in the stone mill it's been it was a really interesting like journey to start working with aurora i knew her sister very well and her sister died very young of diabetes complications Mm -hmm. and two of her sisters were the founding members of the group in 1994 and we started cooking with my friend pastora who's one of the other founding members and the woman that i've known the longest and she, after like a year, she was like, you know what? I'm not really into this. Like I, I will, I like to give the dye classes, but I don't really like to cook. So, <laughs> but I know someone that does. Yeah. And so we met Aurora and the first time we met was like the day of the dead. It was very magical. Her mm. hills up on her house is up on this hill overlooking the entire valley and she comes out of her wood-fired kitchen, like, holding a steaming plate of tamales. Like, it was just beautiful. Yeah. And then the fact that I knew her sister really well, and we never met while her sister was alive, and it was during the Day of the Dead, we both were kind of like, well, I think our, your sister wanted us to meet, you know, like, Petrona, yeah. like, it's some, some connection. And... We used to do one really traditional dish, which I love making, which is cracked corn tostadas, which is sort of her specialty. Okay. And she does a flash nixtamalization. So we we cook the corn with calcium hydroxide and wash it right away, which usually you let it soak overnight. Right. So it creates a totally different texture and you grind it on the metate on the stone mill. And so there's this cracked, crunchy, oh. rough tostada and it mm-hmm. tastes like popcorn. It's amazing. Oh. And then we used to do something in the blender so that people that are cooking at home could make like a, an amarillo or a verde. But then one day the electricity went out in the entire town. And so we had to do everything on the stone mill. And Aurora said, you know what? I like this better. 
So it's been really cool to work with her over the last five years because she's made the class her own, right? Mm -hmm. She decided, you know, she wants to do everything on the stone mill, everything wood fired. She's changed out all her dishes for clay tools. And it's just been really cool to see like how the miscouting experiences have have grown and developed based on the people we work with more than anything. Well, yeah, that's what we walked away with is I we both could feel like that connection and respect for the communities that you work with and the fact that you do have a relationship. It's not just this financial transaction between you and and the folks that, you know, we go out to meet. Um, There's just an ongoing friendship and appreciation. And when we did our 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 outing, um, you told you can us say tour. That's okay. <laughs> I mean, I think it was you. So tour. We learned about. I think we were in Santa Catarina Minas. Is that where mm-hmm. Minas mm-hmm. is? Um, yeah. Is there was? I think it was like maybe a year post, year and a half post COVID, and you were telling us about the school that had been set up. And I'm not sure. I can't remember what the name of that project or not. Yeah. So, so the that project is called Biblioteca El Rosario, and uh yeah part of uh so five dollars from every tour fee goes to a community project where we work so in Mitla and Totitlan it goes to the Vida Nueva Women's Cooperative uh, Community Projects they do a different project every year like um, creating eco stoves for women in the community so they're not breathing in all this smoke and they're saving wood, uh, reforesting trees in the community. They started a recycling program. And then the Biblioteca del Rosario is this amazing project started by the Angeles Carreño family. They're the owners of the Real Minero Mezcal. And they created this nonprofit library because most kids in the community don't finish middle school. And so they were sort of wondering why, if there is a middle school in the community, why kids are not finishing. So they did a, a, an economic study of the four neighborhoods in the town. And one of them, El Rosario, is sort of the most like far away from the downtown area. It's a town of about 2,500 people. And so to be able to go to school every day, these kids were taking a motor taxi down and then a motor taxi back up. And if they need to use a cyber cafe or print anything or have a snack, it was costing about 50 pesos per day per kid. So that's about $2 and 50 cents. Um, and most of the families in that area have four school age children and the median income is $10 a day. So, so that, I mean, that doesn't, the math just doesn't work out. So the idea of Biblioteca del Rosario and the, why they built it in that area is so that kids could have access to computers for academic purposes, discounted printing, and it's an area for the community. So, I mean, they do have books, they do have games, they do um, really cool events for the kids. Like they work with this biologist, Matias, and he's like a reptile expert. So he taught the kids all about reptiles. And there's like an app on their phones because everyone has smartphones, but no one has a computer. But there's this app where kids can like say like, oh, I saw this lizard here. And it like uploads to this database. And it's very cool and modern for reptiles. Yeah. And and they have, um, you know, like every year they do this kite making and flying contest. And... The idea is they also bought um, bikes for the kids that live downtown mm-hmm. and so they can go up and sort of mingle with the kids there because they realized those kids weren't playing sports. Mm-hmm. They weren't playing an instrument. And that's two really important things in the community. 
uh, because they were just coming down for school and then going back up. So they wouldn't come back down for soccer practice or band practice or anything like that. Yeah. So the idea of, um, next year is to build an arts wing as well. Oh, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So they can have music classes yeah. or photography or. Yeah. And it's also a community space. It has an outdoor kitchen. So we've done several events there. Very beautiful. Look, overlooking the whole Oakland Valley um, where we've been able to cook, sort of incorporate more of that food system into it. Yeah. Yeah. We were really just blown away by, I mean, the whole experience really for me, when you were talking about corn, how there's not a lot of studies, it actually reminded me of when we were at Real Minero and talking about the different species of agave and how they're really working to try to preserve and could I say reforest in a way, like some of those wilder, um, yeah, totally. um, and yeah, it was just fascinating. And then just the fact that that hasn't really been done within that space, that industry with the growing popularity of it too. Um, that was, and now, so you bring up a great point, Claudia. So that, that, the garden that we visit is called mm -hmm. Project Lamb. Yes. Named after their late father, Lorenzo Angeles Mendoza. Mm -hmm. And he was sort of this agave visionary and also planting trees when no one was thinking about sustainability. Mm -hmm. And now, since you've visited, they're building the first agave seed bank. Really? Very exciting. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. On site where they're at right now? Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. It was... I don't know. I just was blown away by all of the work that they do. And then just seeing the Palenque when we went to go see the pit where we were, they were dropping the the piñas, the agave plant, um, to see the amount of work that goes behind such an artisanal product. So I think that's really what it is. Yeah. I, I mean, we still talk about it to friends and we're like, when you go, you have to check this out. We told my brother um, and we were like, we would do it all over again. Absolutely. It's been nice. Yeah. Well, next favorite. time we'll go, we'll go to Milan so you oh. can see a different style of production. Yeah. And we can butcher a goat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That would be fantastic. So I'm curious for us. I mean, we definitely walked away with more knowledge and just a greater appreciation for everything that's done behind the scenes. Cause when we drink mezcal now, we, at, at least the Real Minero for sure. It's not just like, Oh, this is delicious. We, there's like this whole other little, you know, background in our head now of all the work that they're doing. Um, what do you hope participants walk away with when they go on one of your outings? That's such a great question, Claudia. And I love that you use the word participant because that's what we use. We don't, we never say customers or clients. Mm -hmm. We always say participants. Yeah. And like when I created sort of the language around miscounting, like experience or outing or yeah. trip and participants. That's exactly what I want people to walk away with, like that they participated in, you know, miscal or they yeah. participated in cooking in the food system or they participated in the craft. It's we rarely just go to someone's house and see a demonstration like yeah. everyone is going to get involved. Right. Yeah. And that's why we call it like an experience or an outing because it's an active participation. And that's something that I hope that people walk away from is like, as you said, Miscal, there's all this work behind it. So much. Making mole from scratch, there's all this work behind it. Um, make even when we went to the Alabrijes, like mm -hmm. every single thing in Oaxaca, like 
there's just so much work behind it. It's like pottery, painted animals, tortillas, like everything is so labor intensive. And so I hope people have a little bit more of an understanding of the work mm-hmm. and a lot of times the passion that goes behind the product. Yeah. Um and also just an appreciation, yeah, for how much work goes into all of these traditions in Oaxaca. Yeah. 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 Uh, there uh, it is really beautiful. Oaxaca is a special place. We've been Yeah. Times it really and, is. And every time we walk away we're like three times? Two I think we've been two or three times. I can't remember how many nice. times, but maybe nice. probably Well, two. Did, did you did you eat a grasshopper? Did you oh, yeah. A- yeah, the first okay. time we were there. So that's the rumor. If you eat the chapulines, then uh-huh. you'll be back in Oaxaca. Oh. Well, I will be going. And I ate one my first day in Oaxaca in 2009. So my fate was sealed. Sealed, yeah. So is ours. Um, Yeah, they're delicious. I told my mom, she's like, you're crazy. I'm like, what are you talking about? You've never had one. They're amazing. (laughs) I think they're great. Um, But yeah, we have some friends. We actually have had several offers. Well, I say offers, asks for folks who want to join us on our next trip and they just want to see it. It, It's grown, obviously, I'm sure, as you know, being in the industry that you're in, Oaxaca's kind of blown up stateside, it feels like. Um, So we have a lot of folks who are curious about it and who want to see it. So I'm sure we'll be back. I may actually go back later this year in the fall, hopefully. That's the plan. Um, But yeah, so no, you're doing great work. Actually, Well, here here in Oaxaca, to to just sort of, Pull it all together. Yeah. The saying is, si no comiste con tortillas, no comiste. So for all your folks traveling to Oaxaca, I mean, the main, your the number one thing you have to try is different tortillas. Because yeah. if you didn't eat with tortillas, then you didn't really eat. And you didn't really eat. I agree. Yeah. From the tlayuda to, you know, the heirloom corn to a tamal. I mean, it's not a tortilla, but the maíz is there. It's just it's sí. so different. Yeah. So I'm curious now to kind of also bring it full circle. How has your relationship to food changed? A lot, a lot, a lot. I mean, I, we just uh, last month we got to go to the coast, which, as you know, is a very long drive. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I just am in awe that we got. To, you know, there's seven different types of bananas in Oaxaca. And we're driving through, you know, this coffee region. So we bought three different types of cacao, fresh cacao pods, mame, guanabana, star fruit. I tried a totally different varietal banana I've never had, rotan it's called. Uh-huh. And like coming from the Midwest with a meat freezer. I mean, I just never imagined that I would get to like have such a varied diet and have... um a connection to the food, you know, like I still go to the grocery store and buy mushrooms in a container. I'm not sure. going to lie. Yeah. But I mean, just having all this access to biodiversity, I think biodiversity is the name of the game here in Oaxaca. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that I think we have probably the one of the highest concentrations of like wild edible mushrooms in the world in Oaxaca bananas, seven types of mangoes, more or less. Just what, how my relationship has changed. I mean, just more of an appreciation and like a curiosity, I would say. And I mean, we're super spoiled with like our local market. You can just buy local herbs, like one lady. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. Like in some of the markets that we go to, it's like, this lady is only selling chamomile. That's it. That's it. 
Or this lady is only selling, this is my favorite one. In the Tlacalula market, there's a lady that's only selling gourds, uh-huh. uh, jicaras, but big ones for drinking uh-huh. tejate. And the pit from the meme fruit, which is called pixle, uh-huh. which is made for use, uh, used for making tejate, which is a traditional corn and cacao drink. Mm-hmm. And that's all she sells is the pit from the meme fruit and the gourds for drinking tejate. It's like, that is a very specific part of the food system. Like, yeah. For sure. I mean, and like we would say niche. (laughs) Very niche. But she's been there for, I mean, at least 10 years that I've seen. Yeah. And it sells and she makes a living, hopefully. And there's also that that I I think I love when I traveled to Mexico. We were in Mexico City for New Year's Eve and we went on another little food tour. And I was talking to one woman. She's been at the stand for 12 years. All she sells is tamales and atole. They were delicious. Um, but yeah, that's that's what she does. And it reminds me often of the Japanese culture as well that do one thing and do it well. Mm-hmm. And I see some of that. And I see that in Mexico, too. And I don't know if what that stems from. Um, but I don't know. There just seems like there's such an appreciation for just doing that one thing and doing it well. Um, whether it's out of necessity or not, I don't know. I might, I hope I'm not over romanticizing it, but yeah, I don't know. There's, I, I like that. It speaks to me for some reason. Yeah, I agree. Groundedness and, and things like that. So yeah, it's really cool. So here's one other question. Since you do eat probably more seasonally than maybe a lot of folks, (laughs) what are you looking forward to? I guess we're going into spring. Or oh. I don't know, Oaxaca, right? It's spring-ish. Yeah. Oh, no, it's spring. Yeah. Um, We're at the start of mango season. So that's... Uh, I knew you were going to say exciting. that. <laughs> very, very exciting. So we're just starting to get Ataulfo mango, which is like here in Mexico, just the regular old mango, mm-hmm. Um, which is my personal favorite. But we also have this mango called mango piña, and it's green on the outside. So it looks like an unripe mango or sort of like what you would eat in like a Thai mango salad. But then on the inside, it's pretty bright yellow. It's very pulpy. It's like very, very stringy and a little bit tart. But that is a really different type of mango. Like I, I had had mango maybe two times when I lived in the States. It was always the Thai mango, the big sort of multicolored um, red and green. Uh And mango piña is like so good. good. Yeah, I know. Every time we go, again, it's the reason I like going on these food tours um, is we always try something different. And I'm like, there's just like, I'm never going to fully uncover everything that Mexico has to offer. So that also keeps me going back for more. Even just the tamales, like you were saying, like, I mean, the, I mean, the fact that it's a pre-Hispanic food in pretty much every region of Mexico and into, you know, Central America makes a type of tamale. It's just like a never ending journey. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And the, the way they're shaped is different and the leaves. Yes. Yeah, but for the first like... time last weekend, I had a bean tamal in an hoja de plátano, it, which usually in Oaxaca you only get the black mole with chicken uh-huh. in a in a banana leaf. Uh-huh. And this was in a region called Putla, mm-hmm. and they had um, banana leaf tamal with sort of a rough corn dough, and then inside a bean paste with quesillo with oh. the string cheese. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Never had anything like that. 
so good. I know. Oh, man. I could talk about food forever. I, You know what I remember from our outing? This is La Colula Market. The, it, was, it wasn't quesillo. It, was, it reminded me of almost like halloumi, but she wrapped it in the corn leaf and then grilled the cheese that way. Yeah, so Doña Betty, she's known as the Frida of Ocotlan. Yes. Her. So she dresses like Frida Kahlo every day. Ocotlan market, not like Ocotlan. Yeah. Ocotlan, yeah. And she does a variety of different cheeses wrapped in different leaves. So she'll do the fresh corn husk or sometimes banana leaves. Yeah. She'll sometimes do a retezón, which is kind of like a ricotta. Or we had like the fresh cheese wrapped in the leaf and then she grills it right on the coals. That is like... <laughs> to so die for good. so good i would go back just for that i mean i go back for a lot of reasons but just for that it was really good yeah so good. well i don't want to take up too much of your time i'm gonna ask you one more question i know yeah. um what are you looking forward to either for yourself or for miss or uh, for <clears throat> scouting in the year ahead like i know you were talking about going out to the coast is that somewhere you're expanding to or mm. is it just like i'm i personally am just looking forward to exploring more of oaxaca even if it takes six hours to travel 120 <laughs> miles <laughs> well yeah. the, i'm glad you asked claudia so this summer we are doing mushrooming tours in two different regions of oaxaca in the southern mountains and in the northern mountains okay working with local guides in the area and a oaxacan mycologist and it's very exciting because Oaxaca is one of the places in the world with the most biodiversity of wild mushrooms. A lot of them edible, so we're going to be cooking with them. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them that are medicinal, some that are just very ecologically important. There's also two native uh, psilocybin mushrooms to Oaxaca, although we will not be focusing <laughs> on those. Um, but yeah, we're very excited because we're going to be offering two different mushroom tours this summer that are three days long. That's awesome. Yeah. It's just growing and changing. I like it. Yeah. That's really amazing. Awesome. Well, is there anything else you wanted to share? Or, I don't know. Anything else you wanted to hit on or what's going on today, Oaxaca? <laughs> what's going on today? Uh, there was a blockade of some sort. I'm not sure what it was for, yeah. as there always is. Right. Yeah. Uh, Coming up, one of the coolest days in the food system is Good Samaritan's Day. So I forget what what week of Lent it is, but there's a day called Good Samaritan's Day, and everyone puts out agua fresca or ice cream or tejate, and they they give it out for free uh, as yeah. part of Good Samaritan's Day. So we you'll see all these good. you know seasonal fruits like guanabana and star mm -hmm. fruit and you know, classics like the hibiscus, the jamaica. And I mean, that is just reason enough to come to Oaxaca, getting fresh, getting free ice cream and agua fresca. We happened to be there the week of Good Samaritan Day. And we were You were? Oh, yes. And we were like, what's going on? Why is everybody? Well, I mean, there's always a party or a calenda or something happening in Oaxaca. So we just assumed it was something like that. I think I stopped and I asked someone. She goes, oh, it's el día de buen samaritano. I was like, Oh, okay. This is great. Why don't we do this in the States? I know. It's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I grew up Catholic, but American Catholic. And one of the my first realizations in Oaxaca about church was like, all the best snacks are outside of church. And maybe if that was the case in the U.S., we would have gone to likes going to church a lot more. It's like yeah. the tamale lady, the mamela lady, the ice cream, it's all outside of church. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's where that's where the community happens, right? That's where exactly that's where communion happens. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, 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 that's so cool. Oh well, yeah. I hope you have a good Samaritan Day. I wish I, I do wish. Thank I was you. Um, I'm looking forward to being back, and I will definitely, definitely reach out when I go again. Great, we'd love to have you guys. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking to me. It was so good. To yeah. See thanks you for having me. Yeah, I could. More. You know me. I could talk about food systems all day. Me too. <laughs> we'll have to do it again. And if there's some, I mean, seriously, like if there's something you're like, I really would love more people to learn about this, or like just the core and biodiversity that we were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. and how you were saying mm -hmm. that there's not a lot of research. Maybe that's changing. That's what I was going to say earlier. I was like, oh, someone oh. come do their PhD on the changing. Yes. Systems of heirloom corn. Some yeah. biologists. Yeah. That would be fantastic. So, yeah. Okay. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you. Have a Good great day. Good to see you. Bye. You too. Okay. Stay in touch. Bye. Bye. Do you ever speak to someone and you turn around and you realize time just flew by? That's exactly how I felt after talking to Andrea. I felt like the hour that we had set aside just flew by. She is a wealth of information, as I said beforehand. Um, she really knows her stuff. You can really hear her passion for food systems. And yeah, I don't know. I was just kind of like fixed on what she was saying. And wow, it was great. Um, I hope you enjoyed it as well. I hope you could really hear the care and respect that she and her team have for the communities that they work with because that's exactly what we saw when we participated in one of their outings. So again, Andrea, thank you for taking the time to speak with me and thank you to you, the listener, for you know taking about an hour or so to listen to this episode. Um, I hope you are doing well. I hope you are safe wherever you are and um, yeah, thanks for being here again. So until next time, hasta pronto. Bye now.